My karate instructor, John Murphy, said, never ever advertise your weaknesses. Don't let them know all you see is a big blurry blob. Stare them down like you can see them and bulldoze right through them. The famous martial arts Bruce Lee said, there are no limits. There are plateaus. No, there are level spots, there are plateaus, but you must not stay there. You must go beyond them. He said, if it kills you, it kills you. Hello and welcome. I'm Eric Quorum, and you're listening to the Blueprint Podcast, where we explore the journey of high performance by learning from the struggles and triumphs of some of the most interesting people in the world. Today, I'm talking with Richard Turner. Richard is a world-class magician and is widely regarded as the most skilled card mechanic in the world. He's fooled Penn & Teller on their own show, dazzled celebrities, and has even earned his six-degree black belt in karate. But as the acclaimed feature documentary film Delt, the Audience Choice Award at the prestigious South by Southwest Film Festival impacts, Richard is blind and has been so from birth. Today, Richard will share how he's mastered his craft by overcoming what the world would say are impossible odds. Richard also shares some amazing wisdom about loving the journey of life and the secrets to a great marriage. And now it's time to lean in and learn from the best. Muhammad Ali once said, Richard Turner is the greatest card mechanic of all time. What is a card mechanic? A card mechanic is somebody who can fix or control the outcome of a card game. Magicians do tricks for the purposes of entertainment, but those techniques they use to perform their tricks will not help them in any way in a card game. The techniques for, for the card table, meaning uh, controlling the outcome of a card game, are many, many, many times more difficult to develop. There are thousands of good card magicians. There's a half a dozen world-class card mechanics. Okay, so give me an example of how you would control a game. I'll give you some for instances of what I can do with a deck of cards. How about that? A little, which is a little, makes it a little more clear. As a for instance, I can hand you a deck of cards say, shuffle them up. I can say, what card game do you want to play? You might say, Texas Hold'em. I'll say, how many players do you want at the table? You might say, five. I'll say, where do you want to sit? You're my secret partner. You say, three. You can shuffle those cards up, and I'll deal it out, and the third hand at a five-player table will have the best hand. And then I can even push the envelope further in that I will let you take the cards out of my hand every time I go around the table, shuffle them up, hold cards back, and just give me a, a random part of that deck, and I'll still make the third player the winning hand. And sometimes when I really push the envelope, I'll even ask, what hand do you want? Do you want a straight? Do you want flush? Do you want a full house? Do you want four of a kind? That's one, for instance. I'll give you another, for instance. You, I say, what card, what's your favorite card? You say sevens. I'll say, how many players do you want? You say six. I'll say, where do you want to sit? You might say four. And so I'll give the deck three shuffles, hand the deck back to you, and have you deal out the hand. And the fourth, 10, 16, 22nd card off the deck in the fourth position will be your four sevens. So I shuffle your cards back in the deck exactly where you chose and you dealt them to prove that I did it. And on that particular skill set, if I miss any of those shuffles by 11.3 thousandths of an inch, and that's the caliper of the cards that I work with, as the 11.3 thousandths of an inch. If I miss the sh any shuffle by the thickness of a single card, everything is messed up. So that's a couple for instances. <laughs> Richard. 
let let's be clear. This is illegal in a regular card game, right? <laughs> that is true. It's well, here, here, it depends on the era that you're in. Back okay. in the days of the old West, the law or the rule of the, of the table was: if you can't see it, it's not considered cheating. If they <laughs> if they did see it, they had the right to kill you. So you were either good or you were good and dead. But you're right. Illegal it might not be quite the right word for it, but it is unethical because I have an advantage over you. The Bible says cheating is stealing, stealing is wrong. And so you are actually stealing from the people. So in that case, um, it is unethical and wrong to do. Uh, but that is why I use it as a form of entertainment, entertainment rather than taking people's money. Not to say there wasn't a period in my t- life where I didn't sit at the table and create an advantage for myself. I gotcha. How in the world did you develop this skill? Well, I started as a little boy. We were very, very, very poor. I lived I actually lived in a basically a ditch dungeon under our house. And um we had four games, Monopoly, chess, checkers, and a deck of cards. I was the oldest. I didn't like to lose. We had no money. But once in a while, I would get a bag of M&Ms. I wanted the M&Ms. So we'd, the M&Ms would be like chips. The reds would be the most valuable. The browns the least valuable. First, I wanted my sister's reds. I wanted those. Then I wanted the greens and the yellows. Then I'll take the browns. And then other times, we'd play what we called massage poker. There'd be a 30-second ante. Then you could bet from 15 to 60 seconds and after each hand, you had to pay up and give the person a foot massage or a back massage. And <laughs> so that's where it started. Then uh, as I went along, uh, I kept dealing hands to myself and realized that if I deal one extra card, I had a 20% chance of winning more often. And so I started figuring out ways to play extra cards. These are, these, mind you, these are the techniques of a seven, eight, nine-year-old, 10-year-old at that time. And uh, so I, and then I started figuring out other methods to help create an advantage during play. And uh, I got to a, a level. Well, I, I, a lady read a book to me uh, when I was 11 years old, which she actually recorded on a tape recorder called Expert at the Card Table by S.W. Erdnays. It was written in 1902. And it was a book strictly written for the professional at the table to give them an advantage. Ernie said, uh, if all professionals at the table, in the long term, you all break even. In other words, you know, the money, money just circles the table. So to take the uh, lambs to the shear, you know, he wrote this book to give the professional an advantage. And so I, I started learning some basic moves, overhand stacks, false shuffles, started working on the you know, bottom deal, second deal, things along those lines. Um, and then when I turned 21, in 1975, I had the privilege of meeting a man named Professor Di Vernon. And Professor Vernon was born in 1894. He lived to be 98 years old. My wife, Kim, and I threw him his 98th birthday, 1992, two months before he passed away. And he took a liking to me, and I had the privilege of working with him for 17 years. So, Richard, I want to unpack something really quick right now. Why did your teacher have to record the book for you? Well, when I was... Nine years old, 1963, my sister Lori and I, we both contracted scarlet fever and it caused a degeneration of the retina and it was almost instantaneous for both of us. I'm sitting in my classroom and we were going over math problems on the on the chalkboard and all of a sudden everything just almost like having a stroke. 
went blurp. That was like someone took the eraser and smeared the the words all all across the thing, all across the chalkboard. And then I looked out at my book, and all of a sudden the words that were clear a minute ago were a, a big fuzz. And the exact same thing happened to my sister. She calls it within 60 seconds. And uh, so I told my teacher, I said, Mrs. Gaston, I can't see the board. And so she thought I was just fooling around with her. I said, no, seriously. So she sent me to the nurse and they did these uh, tests. Uh, you know, the nurse did say, what direction is the E pointing, which was the eye test of the, of the day. And I couldn't see it. So she kept moving me closer and closer. I could get the, the big one and the second one down. And so then I went to a bunch of different uh, eye doctors. And um, what basically what happened is my macula, which is the center of the eye, dissolved, which meant that took care of all the forward vision. And then my peripheral vision dropped to 20 over 400. 2020 is, is normal vision. You have to have at least 2050 to drive a car. 2200 is considered legally blind and 2400 is twice as low as what's considered legally blind. So that's how I grew up from age nine up till my thirties. And then eventually that degeneration uh, encompassed the full range of my retina to where I have uh, no actual real vision left. Wow. So at was it seven or nine? Nine. Seven is when I started nine. playing cards. Nine is when I yes. went south. With so, the vision. so at nine years old, you lose your vision. Yeah, I started losing it. I, yeah, I, I was legally blind. I was, I was twice as low as what's considered legally blind, even though I could still see images and shapes out of the corner of my eye one at a time, but I couldn't read or drive or any of the standard things that other people could do. Emotionally, what did that do to you as a kid? Well, emotionally at that time, it really hit me pretty hard because when I was five years old, I had what's called an eidetic memory. Even to this day, I can see every image of my life frame by frame. It's not like a video. It's like still shots of my kindergarten class, my the playground, everything. And uh, I was in five, five years old in my finger painting class. And there was a picture in a National Geographic that my mind took a picture of. And instead of smearing the fingerprint all over the table, my nose, like all the rest of the class, I did this perfect landscape replicating the image in my mind of this uh, picture in National Geographic of the floor of the ocean bed with a seaweed going up and fish and sharks and jellyfish. And, and my teacher goes to her, her, her aide, come here and look what Ricky did. They called me Ricky back then, and mm. they were just astounded. And so first grade, second grade, third grade, fourth grade, I was the best artist in the class. I could take anything, a dog, a house, or whatever it was, and replicate it beyond the level of a, of a little punk kid. And, <laughs> and so then, and that was my identity at that time. And so then I was in my fifth grade year, they did not have the facilities to accommodate someone who couldn't read or write. And so my whole fifth grade year in, in elementary school, all I did was art and spelling. In the sixth grade year, I was shipped out to a special school where they had facilities for the visually impaired. And back then it was called visually handicapped. And I have to say, I hated the word handicapped and I despised the word blind. I was rebellious. Uh, Mr. Ed Bryan, who was absolutely a wonderful man, he ran the VH department, he would try to get me to learn Braille. And I said, 
I looked at the Braille Bible, the Braille Bible, or the Braille Encyclopedia stressed across an entire wall in his office. The Braille Bible at that time, which was still legal to have in schools, stood about two, two and a half feet tall, 17 volumes to about two and a half, in, two inches thick each. And I said, Mr. Brian, I'd need a wheelbarrow to carry around, carry around one book. How practical is that? No Braille for me. Don't ask me again. And so I refused that. I refused Braille. So to jump ahead and back to your question, how did it affect me emotionally? Uh, there was a girl named Sharon Coleman who was the best artist in the, at this school. So she had all the attention for the art and drawing and painting and so on. And where I lost that identity. And so instead of trying to do the best I could, I started just scribbling like one of our other VH students named Ruben, Ruben Corral, who would just scribble because he couldn't see anything. And, and they, they laughed at him and, but he got more attentions. So I kind of went that direction and simultaneously uh, that same year, I entered a statewide art boys club art competition for the state of California as a statewide uh, event. And uh, I did a, I did a painting of three vases with proper shadowing and lighting and so on. And it won first place. And the other kid, there was a number of bullies there, a couple in particular, who didn't like that the blind kid won. And so they started flipping the bird in front of my face going, hey, Magoo, how many fingers am I holding up? And while I was distracted, his other friend picked the wall out of my back pocket. And I had three full dollars. That was my every penny I had. I had three dollars in my pocket. Took me forever to get that much money. And. When he'd hold the wallet in front of my face, say, hey, blind boy, got any money? Going to buy us a hot dog? And when I grabbed for my wallet, he'd throw it over my head to, a, to, to his friend behind me in a kind of a nasty game of mm. keep away. And they kept going back and forth. I'd grab it and they'd turn around and they'd throw it over. And, and then the, all the other kids started gathering around, watching and laughing and snickering. And and uh, and then they started slapping me across the cheeks with my wallet going, can you see to grab your money, mm. blind boy? And then they one jumped on my back. And uh, drove me to the ground, kicked me in the ribs, and they ran off laughing, saying, thanks for the hot dog, Brian boy. And uh, so that just ticked me off. And uh, there, was, uh, there was three movies that really kind of inspired me as a kid. One was Ben-Hur with Charlton Heston, and uh, because I liked his strength. And another was Maverick, is what, where I got my start with cards, watching James Garner in this TV series Maverick. And I want to be a cool gambler. And the other was uh, Bruce Lee in Cato, uh, as Cato in the Green Hornet. Mm. And I thought one day I'm going to learn karate and kick in their faces. So anyway, so it had that emotional effect on me in that I lost my identity with my art. And that caused a rebellion to where I did the normal thing. I was this 1969, 70, 71, the, the hippie scene. And I became a hippie and I got involved with drugs. And that which only lasted three years. It was uh, February 5th, no, February 13th of 1971 when I stopped all of drugs. And that was because of, uh, you know, uh, I was taking the church and uh, realized some other things, you know, uh, a personal change in my life from a, I'll call it a spiritual standpoint that set me free from that uh, downward spiral that I was on. Richard, so what people can't see right now and what they can hear, what are you doing while we're talking? <laughs> I cannot talk 
on the phone or anything else without practicing with the cards. I, you know, if they make noise, I'm trying to be, do things that don't make too much noise. Uh, but I am practicing with my cards because that is my living. That is my passion. That is my love. And just to give uh, your listeners a little background on how much I practiced. I started this uh, little boy and over 57 years, I have put in about 150,000 hours of practice which Malcolm Gladwell talks about the rule of 10,000 hours to become a master. You must put at least 10,000 hours in. I have that times 15. And that's the last time I calculated. I haven't calculated the added hours over the past five or 10 years. You Uh, anticipated my next question, uh which is this whole podcast is about the journey of high performance. And Richard, you are an elite performer. When you started with Professor, let's go back to Professor Di Vernon. Mm-hmm. What was that experience like? And I can only imagine he's a master magician, but a master coach. And what was the process of being coached like by him? And how much time and effort and and grind did it take for you to get to where you're at? Excellent question, Eric. And if I may add, you have a beautiful voice. Thank you. <laughs> Beautiful way. And, uh, well, I started, like I said, 75. And when I first met Vernon, he was critical. He goes, that is no good. That will not fly in a card game. You're unnatural in your actions. So he was hard on me the first day we met, which was at the Hollywood uh, Magic Castle. And um, so he was very hard on me, but he, for some reason, took a liking to me. And, uh, and it was partly because of my – I have the same obsessive nature – that he did. In now, Richard, he, I'm going to interject here. 1975, you're already at the Magic Castle. Mm-hmm. So for those that don't understand, the Magic Castle is the pinnacle arena for magic. So it would be like playing football in the stadium with the New York Giants or being in the Roman Coliseum. You're already there. And Professor Vernon is telling you that basically you suck. Yes. And <laughs> that's exactly right. But that was my first day going to the castle. Okay. I was invited by a friend. I had I was four or five years late, four years later that I actually had the privilege of performing there. I was denied. Okay. I was denied uh, three three auditions. Uh, okay, because, so you've been denied. Okay. Yes. Uh, okay. Yeah, because I was uh, I was uh, they called they said you look like Robinson Crusoe. You're not castle material. So it wasn't so much my technique as it was my looks. Wow. Um, <laughs> so anyway, but Professor took a liking to me because he spend his life chasing down gamblers from around the world, across the country and around the world and uh, learning everything he could. And he was considered the father of close-up magic. And he was the best card man for like 60 years. And also known as the man who fooled Houdini. And that took place 101 years ago, 1919 in Chicago. Houdini claimed that if he saw any trick three times, he could figure it out. Vernon did it for him like five times in Finally, Houdini's wife said, admit it, Harry, he's fooled you. And Harry was his real name, <laughs> Harry Houdini. And um, so Vernon, for 60 years, was the best in the world with a deck of cards and respected as such. And uh, so to have the privilege to even meet him was an honor. And then he, for whatever reason, saw that I would put in 10 to average 14 hours to 20 hours a day, sustained for 26 years, 10 to 20 hours a day, Every day for 26 years straight, just to give you a little context there. Uh, but at that time, he would he would give me a task. 
what unfortunately came off and started off with what he told me, what you're doing there is very unnatural. So I took it and I started analyzing everything he said. And then the next time he saw me, he goes, wow, what an improvement. And so then he started giving me tasks. And then as the, as the time and years went on, he would say, Richard, this is the way it should be done. And he would describe moves to me, not in the way that he could do them or the way that any other card person could do them, but in the way that he wished they could be done in an ideal, an ideal method, a perfect method. And I didn't know that. I thought he could do them. And he would show me, he'd say, feel my hands. And because I couldn't see what he was demonstrating, I would feel his hands. He'd say, the fingers need to be on the sides and uh, here, and you need to do this and that. And so I started creating all these different moves and techniques. And it was only uh, years later that he admitted to me that he made them up. He thought they were impossible. He just wanted to see what the obsessed kid would come up with. But it came from, back to your question, of putting in the hours. Ten, uh, average, my average practice time was 14 hours a day. Unlike Liberace, who cannot put his, take his piano when he goes to the movie theater or sit in a bathroom or anywhere else and practice, I could practice anywhere and everywhere because the card's only <laughs> two and a half by three and a half inches. And uh, so that's why I was able to put in the hours that I did. And I was already a hyper person. And I took that idle energy. We all have energy that we're not using. Look at it like a car that's idling. That car is running, but it's doing nothing. But yet it's, it's, it's expending gasoline and energy, but it's doing nothing. And so uh, put it another way, people will sit there and they'll tap their fingers or they'll have a pin in their hand. They'll tap that, the pin against the table. They'll tap their foot on the floor. You know, that's idle energy that's being wasted. I took that idle energy and I focused it all down into my fingertips and the cards around those uh, around those fingertips. And that way I was able to put in the, the hours that I did. And then to give you a little further background, what I would do is I would take the moves and I would analyze them piece by piece, you know, frame by frame till every exacting element of the muscle memory was firmly embedded in my brain. And then once I got it in the way that professor described it, then I would sit there and practice it super slow motion. Like I'm doing a particular second deal. My thumb would have to push over exactly 22.6 thousandths of an inch, the caliper of two cards every time. And then when my right thumb would sweep across the deck, it had about a thousandth of a second to engage the second card as it passed, passed across the medium and, and hit it and deal it out. And so I'd analyze it in slow motion. Then I would turn it into a subconscious habit. So I'm, as I, right now, I'm in my subconscious state because I'm talking with you. I would take that move, and then no matter what I'm doing, I'm sitting in the movie theater, I'm sitting in the car, and I had a little table, a little table I could sit on my lap wherever I was. I called it my survival kit, which was <laughs> a, a little 8 by 12-inch piece of plastic with a little piece of felt on top of it and a rubber band going around it where my deck was strapped. So wherever I went, there it was. So I'm at a restaurant having dinner with you. I'm under the table practicing. And uh, in, in, in three quarters of the time, I would not be aware of what my hands were doing. So I was taking that idle energy, focusing it, and uh, only after first breaking down what I wanted to accomplish, so I'm not practicing things wrong. And here's one of the things I say. Practice does not make perfect. Perfect practice makes perfect. 
When you're doing something, you practice it wrong. You're throwing a karate kick. You're sweeping up that sidekick and you do that a thousand times. When you're done, you've practiced it and you practice it perfectly wrong. So it's perfectly wrong. So you have to make sure what you're practicing is correct. So uh, perfect practice makes perfect. So get back to what I, what I was saying. I make sure I didn't have to move down in the way, the ideal way it should be accomplished. And then, uh, then as I said, I would just sit there and do it over and over. Uh, 4,000, 5,000, 16,000 uh, uh, times in a four hour period. And that, that was kind of the way I uh, was able to put in the number of hours that I did. But first, like I said, you have to analyze what you're doing, how you're going to do it, and what your end result is, and then what it would take to make that happen. Could you unpack that sequence just a little bit? Because that sounds like it's applicable to anybody in any profession. So that's really the process of developing expertise. Could you unpack that just a, a little bit more? Oh, you bet. And and you will probably end up touching on this. So I'll break that Ice now, you know, I started in the martial arts in 1971, um, March 5th, 1971, and I hold a six-degree black belt in Wadokai, and I've trained in uh, Wadokai, Shotokan, Taekwondo, Jukido, uh, Kimko, Kempo, um, all different forms of martial arts. And uh, so uh, that would be probably a, uh, an area that people would be more familiar with because, uh, you know, the sports – you know, there's a lot of people involved in all different types of sports. So you take, uh, in that case, you take the move, you take the, uh, I'll use a kick. Uh, you take the move or technique you want to accomplish. And what I do is I always start with my weakest side first. Say I'm naturally stronger with the right leg. I will start my kicks with my left leg or my punches with my left hand. And then I would I'd focus on that. Practice the techniques, practice it in slow motion, making sure I'm not just throwing it out there, out there and letting it whack, making sure I'm analyzing what I'm doing and that the technique is properly f- thrown and executed. And then I would I, I'd just do it over and over and over. They say practice makes perfect. We talked about that. Mm-hmm. Perfect practice makes perfect. And then another thing I like to say is discipline breeds discipline. Discipline breeds discipline. The more you do something, the more you can do of it, and the better you do it as long as you're practicing it correctly. So discipline breeds discipline. When I'm training somebody, I will start off with something that's so easy for them to do, they can't talk themselves out of it. Like if somebody wants to lose 10 pounds or 20 pounds or 50 pounds, I'll say, just walk down the street the distance of three houses and then come back. So easy, they can't talk themselves out of it. Then the next day, go down four houses, five houses. Then I'll say, now now I want you to just jog the distance of one house, then walk. Then jog the distance of the next house and walk. And then by changing your mind and your makeup, that starts creating discipline within your brain, within your uh, makeup. And, And as I said, it breeds discipline. And so it makes it easier and easier. And then the endorphins, the way we're, we're created, there's this chemicals that our body will start to excrete. So for when you first start out, you're just walking down the distance of three houses. And then a year, a year later, you're running marathons. I love it. So, Richard, I want you to talk a little bit about Charles Bonnet syndrome. Ah. So you have a very rare... I'll let you unpack what Charles Binet syndrome is, but then how, if you wouldn't mind describing 
how that affects the way that you actually see the world. Okay. Uh, Charbonnet syndrome, that's French. It was first documented in 1760 by Charbonnet. And the English pronunciation is Charles Bonnet. So if you want to Google this, Charles Bonnet syndrome is B-O-N-N-E-T. Up until 1990, there was only six documented cases. And a best-selling author named Dr. Oliver Sacks uh, had documented a few dozen other cases. And I've had the privilege of speaking to and know many, many of the top eye surgeons across the country. And uh, I'm by far the most extreme case of CBS is the acronym for Charles Syndrome, CBS. So when you hear me say CBS, not talking about the network, talking about Charles Bonnet. <laughs> and uh, um, in most cases, the other cases, they will sporadically see uh, some sparkles or maybe the image of something, and it's very fleeting. In my case, what happened is my subconscious flipped into external space. I know it's, I don't see my subconscious in the back of the mind, like when you're dreaming or you're sitting, uh, or, uh, uh, sitting imagining something in the back of your head. What I'm seeing in the back of my head, I see actually in front of me in the same way you see what you're looking at in front of you. I see projected in front of me. Basically, I live in what I call virtual reality. And uh, what is cool about it, um, I'll, I'll start breaking it down a little more piece by piece. I live in basically what I call two basic spectrums, what I call the red spectrum and the blue spectrum. Now, the red spectrum, I have had uh, a neuroscientist named Dr. Ogus from Harvard kind of really break all this down into into its most heady details that is over my head to really be able to explain. But the, but the, the, red, the red spectrum is all geometric shapes. So I will see a uh, like either like bricks laid out and they're all the brick mortar, what would be gray in a normal uh, building is maroon, which is one of my favorite colors. Then the bricks would be a red color. And then in, inside of those bricks are all these geometric shaped triangle circles. And then in those shapes would be every subconscious image you could imagine. So that's the, they call it the lower part of the brain, the analytical. And uh, then the other spectrum I call the blue spectrum, which is, is total random. If you just picture taking a paintbrush and, and going from roof to ceiling, roof to ceiling, I'm sorry, from floor to ceiling, floor to ceiling, strokes of a paintbrush. And, uh, and they start off with maroon, uh, uh, I'm sorry, deep royal blue to blue to turquoise blue to uh, sky blue down to emerald green to lime green, the, all the different uh, colors in the blue spectrum. And it's totally random. And then uh, in amongst all that random uh, strokes, paint colors are, once again, every subconscious image you can imagine floating around in your brain. Now, uh, another, another way to picture this in a way that your audience can understand is if you put yourself underwater in a swimming pool and instead of fish floating around would be the image of a horse, a motorcycle, just everything you could imagine mm -hmm. in, that you've seen floating around. And it's all the images are two dimensional, but they're layered three dimensionally. In other words, the distance and, and in front and they're uh, and the and the colors are as vivid as the cells in a movie theater. You know, above the uh, above the sets on a uh, on a stage are what they call cells, and they have blue, red, all the different colors with a light shining from behind it. So these colors are not dull; 
They're extremely bright, extremely beautiful. And um, how I can manipulate them is, let's say I want to, I want to remember a phone number. I can write the phone number down in the air. I'll see it floating in the air just as clearly as you would see it on a computer screen or on a chalkboard. Now they call it whiteboards. And I have what's called a eidetic memory. Like I said, I take a picture of it and I never forget it. And then I file it away. When I want to bring it up, it'll come back up. This sounds like Sherlock Holmes' mind, uh, mind palace. I've not seen that, but if if that's what it sounds like, that's what it sounds no, like. No, there's a, there's a book called um, – Moonwalking with Einstein. Oh, Moonwalk. Yes, I've read that book. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah, a long time ago. Um, yeah, I'm I'm a I'm a certified oddball. Um, <laughs> and, in fact, real quickly, I'll I'll, I'll tell you how, how you become a certified oddball. <laughs> okay, tell me. Unpack this one. I, I'm excited about hearing this. Okay. Yeah. Well, you heard of the TV show Ripley's Believe It. Well, you heard of Ripley's Believe It or Not. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Ripley's back in the 30s did all had all these crazy people. And uh, just and then there's the museums across the country. Well, I was on the TV series Ripley's Believe It or Not back in 1984, hosted by Jack Palance, and I'm actually in a in an exhibit in the second largest Ripley's in the country, and I'm in the 2015 issue of Ripley's Believe It or Not Book of Eye Popping Oddities. Right, received a certificate stating that I am a certified oddball. So Eric, <laughs> you might be an oddball, but I'm certified. I love now, it. How's that for, for credits beyond credits? <laughs> That's amazing. Anyway. Richard, I got to ask you, uh-huh. you are an expert at your craft. You have trained hundred, what did you say? 150,000 hours. Oh, You've mm-hmm. been tutored and mentored by the best in the world. Yes. Was there ever a point where you got stage fright? Oh, stage fright. Sure. Uh, and I've done tens of thousands of shows. I've been on stage since 1972 when I was with a theater company. So, yes, I get, I get stage fright. I had stage fright before coming on with you because, uh, you're, as you know, your brother is like a brother to me, and you <laughs> are a brother to my brother. And, and so, uh, How do you overcome that? I mean, you are a master at your craft. You are supremely confident in your capabilities. How do you overcome? Like, I think you said last week you did something for – Several hundred thousand people in oh, yeah. China or Hong Kong? Oh, yes. Well, I did two different things. One for Hong Kong that we filmed last week that's going to go to 35,000 different media outlets throughout Asia, China, and that uh, that part of the world, as well as it'll be here as well. And then I did another show that was uh, 200,000 people signed up to uh, watch that particular broadcast event. And uh, it's a two-day event. So how do you control your emotions? Like when you know you have a like a, a moment like this, how what is your mindset? How do you prepare for that? Well, first of all, there's stage fright can be a good thing because it starts making those adrenaline glands excrete that that stuff that creates energy and and activity. Otherwise, if you don't have some sort of I'll just, fright, might not be quite the right right, right word for it, but. It's excitement. Yeah, excitement, but it is a fright. It's more than it is excitement. And uh, be, but then as soon as I get started, it I, my focus, I, I train, I direct my focus on what's going on now, because now it's your mind that creates that anxiousness or that fright, because the pictures in your mind are always far more scary 
as a simple word than reality. You think about, I'm getting ready to fight this guy. Okay, you're my man. That guy is so big. He is so strong. And man, he's so fast. And then you get in and you go, hey, I did all right. You know, so it's the, the expectations that your mind creates is many times worse than the actual event itself. So that's one thing. And then as soon as I get involved with the event, then, of course, my mind is distracted from the fear. And so it's no, it, it no, it's no longer in play. And I take that same energy that at first was making me anxious and put it into hopefully entertaining and amazing and uh, inspiring my audience. So this is performance under pressure. And I couldn't imagine somebody that's done it more at such a high caliber level. You think of a pro athlete, they play one game. How long was your running act at the Magic Castle? Well, I started performing there for 40 years, 41 years ago. But I've performed for some of the most interesting people on the planet. Um, you know, I was the keynote speaker at Apple. I've been on both their campuses, including their new $6 billion campus, all made out of glass. Really super cool. Uh, Facebook, friends at Facebook. And just about, uh, it would be easier to say which companies I've not spoken to uh, and ones I have when you talk about the Fortune 500 or, you know, go down further to Fortune 1000 and so on. And, and up until the virus came, you know, I was uh, I had one month I had 21 flight. No, I had 16 flights in 21 days. And I had just finished headlining in South Africa, Cape Town. When uh, we got back the day they had their first uh, virus uh, in uh, Cape Town. So we got back just in time. But my bottom line to get back to the point is that I have the privilege of speaking and performing to some of the most accomplished people on the planet. And the, the fact that they're listening to this little card guy astounds me. Uh, Adam Shear is a friend of mine. He invented Siri. Everybody knows Siri, right? Mm. Yeah. He, and he's a good friend. And now he created something that's like Siri on, Siri on steroids which is called VIV, V-I-V, stands for, it's Latin for, means life. And, um, but anyway, I uh, just, uh, I've entertained like Bob Hope, who said, I'll never play cards with you. Johnny Carson said, or got, I did Johnny Carson, Gregory Peck, and Gene Kelly all at the same time. And Gene Kelly says to Johnny, says, Johnny, you understand this stuff. How's he doing it? And Johnny says, I don't know, but he sure does it beautifully. And then Gregory Peck says, I know who I'm having over as my new poker partner. And then you mentioned at the beginning of this thing, Muhammad Ali saying that, you know, you're the greatest card mechanic of all times. So I can actually say that I've been kidnapped and hugged by the three-time boxing heavyweight champion of the world. I won, a, I won a competition in Las Vegas hosted by Siegfried and Roy, all the top sleight-of-hand artists from around the world. And I was the winner of that. And so Ali, and Ali was there, and there's like 1,500 people in the audience watching this showdown. And uh, then he, we became friends and Absolute of all the celebrities I've had the privilege of performing for and getting to know, I think he's probably my favorite for two reasons. One, he was just such a wonderful man. And two, he had a great sense of humor. And three, he's a three-time heavyweight boxing champion of the world, and I'm a fighter. And so I respected him for the, that, those accomplishments. And, and I, could, I could sit there and go on and on with stories with Ali, but I, I don't want to get off on too many tangents, which is a tendency I have to do. I, I want to read something. That you read, you said at one point, you said, I've tested myself through risky mental and physical challenges of martial arts fighting, shark hunting, cliff diving, tightrope walking, trapeze swinging, and the high stakes of underworld gambling. What is it about the, about you 
that leads you to want to take amazing risks? People have accused me of being a, a, a junkie, a, an adrenaline uh, rush junkie. And in some cases is the case, it, you know, and, and then partly it came from uh, my, as I talked earlier as a kid, being the, I was either the smallest or second smallest in the class and getting beat up. And I didn't want to get beat up. And I was also, there was two movies that, I, well, one TV show and one movie that had a profound effect on my psychological makeup as a kid. One was a movie called Lord of the Flies. It was about a group of kids stranded on an island and they became savages. And there was a kid on that island with them named, they called him Piggy. And he was chubby, had glasses and had asthma. And they ended up killing the kid. And uh, I was, instead of being chubby, blind and had asthma, I was skinny as a stick, blind and had asthma. And so I was afraid I was going to turn out like that coward piggy. And then there was another show called Lost in, Lost in Space back in the 1960s. And there was an actor on there, Jonathan Harrison, played Dr. Smith in that series. And then there was the little kid, Billy Mummy, the little 10-year-old kid who was the brave one uh, facing down this <laughs> goofy-looking monster probably made out of paper mache while Dr. Smith is hiding behind a rock and cowering. And I was always afraid I was going to be that guy cowering behind the rock. And so that probably is what set within me that adrenaline glam rushing that I did not want to be like that. And I have to say that I've pushed things beyond what people would consider rational. And I don't regret it. I have had, I've actually had lots of surgeries because of my high impact living, but I don't regret any of it. And it, and it made me who I am. And it, I'm a little different. I know that my dad was a very gifted man. He could work off the right and left half of the brain. So a part of it, I did inherit his, he was gifted and I did inherit some of that from him, that part of that brain stuff. Richard, you were the subject of an award-winning documentary film called Delt. And for our listeners, the producer and director of that film is my brother, Luke Corum, and that's how we met. And this movie won the Audience Choice Award at South by Southwest. It's received a rating of 95 on Rotten Tomatoes, five stars on iTunes, and Variety Magazine described as nothing short of dazzling. I was at the premiere, and I get a little emotional talking about this, but I'd never seen the film. Luke wouldn't share it with me. I'd actually met you in San Antonio when we did mm -hmm. a filming, and that's when you and I met, and I actually got to see you up front. And I'd seen some amazing magic. We're not going to talk about going to this. My dad was a world-class magician. And I was completely floored by you. And then when I learned your story, it just took it to another level. And, and as soon as the film ended, the whole place stood up. And there was a, a raucous round of applause. But what I want to unpack with, with our listeners here is what was it like to have your life, you know, unpacked in front of the whole world, the good, the bad, the ugly. What was that like for you? Well, uh, up uh, for years, let me give you, I'll bring you down a little timeline. I rejected when people would tell me or mention the fact that I had vi any kind of visual impairment. I always play, my first director, Steve Terrell, 1972, when I joined the theater company, 
I would look, when I would be on stage, I would be looking off to the side instead of looking at the actor in front of me where I had no forward vision. I'd have to look off to the side to, to see the image of where the person was. And he said, that doesn't look right, Rick. It look, it'll be strange to the audience wondering why you're looking to your right instead of looking at the actor. So he taught me how to play the part of the sighted person, first of all. And my karate instructor, John Murphy, said, never, ever advertise your weaknesses. Don't let them know all you see is a big, blurry blob. Stare them down like you can see them and bulldoze right through them. The, the famous martial arts Bruce Lee said, there are no limits. There are plateaus. No, they're level spots. They're plateaus. But you must not stay there. You must go beyond them. He said, if it kills you, it kills you. And I thought that. If it kills you, it kills you. So I thought, if it kills me, it kills me. I'm going to do it. And having my life portrayed. Oh, so let me just continue down that storyline. So I was, I rejected when everyone, anyone wanted to tell, oh, yeah, he's one that's a top card guy in, in the country or in the world, depending on where it was at that particular stage of my life. But he's also legally blind or he's blind. And I, I, I'd go, what does that have to do with it? That's irrelevant to the point. That would be like me saying, oh, by the way, did you know Eric has a colostomy? You know, or <laughs> Eric, did you know Eric has a, he has a amputated foot. Irrelevant to the point. So I would, uh, would get upset when people would bring that point. And yeah. then as time went on and then my beautiful wife, Kim, who we've been together 30 years, you know, and when and she was there when uh, all the rest of my vision went south and I would, I totally didn't realize it happened because of my CBS, because projected in front of me, my mind creates vision. I didn't know that what was left was only the projection that my CBS was creating, that there was actually no vision left even peripherally. And it, and it manifested itself in the constant running into walls, doors, splitting my head open about every Two or three weeks, I mean, I say split my head open. I'm pouring blood down my head. Uh, my wife and I were sitting in a, in a chair. She's reading a book, and I'm shuffling. The phone rings. I dashed to answer the phone. I slightly miscalculated. I ran square into the corner of a wall, split my head wide open. I'm gushing blood. She looked up from her book and said, now that one had to hurt. When you get off the phone, don't forget <laughs> to wipe up the blood. That's how, how um, you know, in our family, you don't. Oh, poor dear. No, 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 no. My wife has a, sec a black, black belt in three different karate systems, as does my son. And so we don't, oh, poor dear, dear, dear. No, uh, uh, we, we laugh at it. We go, good one, good one. You get hit. Oh, man, that was a good one. So anyway, <clears throat> so she was there when my vision went south. And she said, stop hiding things that is evident to people now. Share it. And, uh, and I had a number of offers to make a movie on my life, one in 88, another in 90, in 89. I said, I'm too young. And then I had three different companies, one out of L.A., one out of New York. These are respected companies. And then your brother and his uh, team. And I'm a Texan, and I knew Hollywood. I was afraid how they would portray it. And New Yorkers, I just didn't like New York anyway, so it's too hard to get around. And, uh, and I like Texans because I'm a Texan. So I went with the Texans and man, did I ever make the right decision? And your brother Luke became like a, a second brother to me, uh, he, another brother to me. And uh, so it was interesting to me. It was an adventure. And people say, how was it having people live with you, stay in your house with cameras going? 
And uh, for Kim and Asa, my wife's name is Kim. My son's name is Asa, A-S-A. His middle name is Spades. Asa Spades, cool name, huh? Anyway, um, <laughs> they, for them, they, at first they had to adapt to it, but then they got used to it. And, and they followed us around the world for, for with pre-production and post-production five years, probably three and a half years in actual production itself. And uh, it was just an adventure. It was exciting. And, and I, here's, I'll, I taught your brother a lesson that gets back to what kind of what we're talking about. He would say, let's chill. And to me, that's his word for let's relax. To me, relaxing is not relaxing. Relaxing to me is like being put in a corner. When I, one of my punishments as a kid is after you got your spanking, you have to stand in the corner for an hour. So for me, relaxing is not relaxing. To me, it's, it's punishment. And I would say, Luke, just relax. Look at this as an adventure. Don't worry about the end result because once it's done, it'll be done. In the pro- enjoy the process. Enjoy the moment, even though it, it, this moment might be a little stressful because we have to remember this. We have to accomplish that. Enjoy the moment and the and the trek, the adventure. And and Luke, Luke, your brother took that to heart. Anyway, so it would get back to your initial question of what was it like. It, it was fun at the same time. I, uh, uh, as I said, I had to learn from if, partly from my wife and others that people are inspired by hearing story, hearing your story. And so I, she said, get over yourself. That was her words. Get over yourself. People want to hear, mm-hmm. share, don't hide it. And, and, and other things, you know, I've had, I'll, I'll admit you, I've had 24 surgeries. I have two new knees from a million kicks. Uh, hernia surgeries because I got to the point where I could bench press twice my body weight. My body weight, when I got my first degree black belt, which took me 13 years and three months of training before I was ready to take on the 10 fighters because Murphy, my sensei, he wanted to have the toughest test in the country. And at that time it was, you had to fight a 10, three minute round bout with a fresh fighter each round. And the rules were, there were very, very, very few rules. You know, no knees. The knees, we we, uh, we avoid knees. And so it took me, like I said, 13 years, three months, and five days of training uh, before I was ready to take on the 10 men. And uh, my training schedule was extremely intense. Like I said, I got to the point where I could bench 340. Oh, let me back up. I was coming. I was going to establish something. My first black belt, I weighed in at 168. And when I first started training, I weighed 110. I was a oh, wow. scrawny little wimp. I got beat up by the girls. I got beat up by the girl women old enough to be my grandmother. And uh, and I was pathetic. And I knew if I was ever going to be able to hold my own like Chuck Norris or Bruce Lee, I had to get over it and keep trekking on. And I was a, I was it was pathetic. And Murphy would tell him, "Don't hit him hard. Wait till he gets to the point where hitting makes him mad. Then you can start hitting him harder." Um, and so anyway, I, I, and he would say, you need to put some weight on your, bo- um, some meat on your bones. So he said, start lifting weights, start taking vitamins, start taking protein. And I've done that for 49 years, four months and so many days. Richard, uh, you are an avid weightlifter. That is true. I have a full gym at home. I haven't missed a workout in over almost four, almost fifth, 49 years plus. And you do all of your sets. How do you how do you organize your sets and reps? This is classic. Oh uh, well, here it goes back to my coach in high school. He said, 
and he, and he was talking to the football players. And of course I was, you know, in the, what that PE. And he said to the uh, football players, he said, you may not have done your 10th rep. You 10th rep. You may have thought that nine was good enough. He said, what if the person across from you on the other line did their 10th rep? And I thought about that. I said, yes. So when I did do all my sets, instead of doing 10, I would do sets. I started with sets of 13. So that was three more than 10. And why I picked 13 is because there are 13 cards in a suit, you know, the spades, diamond clubs, hearts. And then I went from there to 26 reps and from 26 reps to 52 reps. So I would do all my sets in uh, decks. I would do uh, like when I do sit-ups, I would do five to seven decks. And I, that's, I still do at least five decks, which means that's five sets of 52. Now, when I turned 52 years old, which was 14 years ago, I said, okay, most people go, they start, they get old, they go down. I said, nope, I'm throwing the jokers in. So now when I do my sets, I have to do reps of 54 reps at a time where everyone else that I might be training, they only have to do 52. And uh, <laughs> so I went the opposite direction. I mean, Richard, you are a physical specimen. I mean, you, you, it doesn't matter your age or not, like what you have done. If you haven't seen the movie Dealt, you have to watch it because when he gets his black belt, you see how grueling this was. You get a glimpse of his training program. What other healthy habits do you practice to keep you performing at such a high level uh, at this point in your career? Well, first, one thing, water. Water, most of our body makeup is water. We're, what, 80-something percent water-based. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, the only thing I drink is water. And I drink it by the gallon. I would, uh, so that's one thing, water. The other thing is I will have start off with a vitamin. I just call it a vitamin drink. I'll throw in all the protein, uh, vegetable protein, uh, carboplex, complex carbohydrates. And then I actually take all my vitamin tablets. And instead of taking them separately, I throw them in there and mix them in there. Uh, because over the years, there were certain ones that show someone's an image of someone's stomach and the tablets sitting in their stomach didn't dissolve, which they've, they've corrected that over the years. But anyway, I just don't take any chances. So I'd throw all my vitamins in there uh, with it and uh, blend it up. And that's how I would start the day. And I had one of my drinks I called liquid hell. And if I wanted a really good workout, I would uh, throw in water as the base, shifts brewer's yeast, which tastes like, C-R-A-P-P-P. -P -P. It's nasty tasting. Shifts Brewer's yeast, half a banana for potassium, and four to six jalapeno peppers. Blend it up, and that's why I call it liquid hell, because you have two choices. Your blood starts boiling, and you either work out like a mad dog, or you start having, you start sweating blood. <laughs> <laughs> you are insane. Like, literally... Insane, because I'm thinking I would end up on the toilet if I drank something like oh, that. My, my work, my friend Jim Blowers, the first time he took a, a, a gulp of liquid hell, he threw up in the kitchen sink. I said, you're not wasting that. I just made that. You finished that down. And then it got <laughs> to the point where when he was doing finals in high, high in college, he would have to have a, a, drink, a batch of liquid hell because it helped him in his finals. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> All right. Here's my last question for you, okay? Uh -huh. oh, and, you know, can we can – we, uh, real quickly, yeah. uh, Charles Bonnet syndrome and how it applies yeah. to working out. Yeah, go for it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what Using mental images. 
most people when they're when they train they just try to pull in their body you'll see you'll see the guy standing next to them they're on the bench press trying to bench 200 pounds or 300 pounds whatever it is they go come on get it cut it out come on you can do it you can do it and all they're doing is they're trying to pull just their body into it it's when you combine body with the mind that creates a tremendous amount of strength i'll give you some for instances you and and i'm using the cbs like I say, I'm doing a bench press. I will see projected over me a, a cable hooked to my my bar goes overhead across two pulleys, and on the other end of that pulley, depending on what images I want to create, either it'll be a counterweight or it'll it'll be like Arnold Schwarzenegger and a gorilla and some big monster. And when I get to the point of exertion, I will then change my mental focus to that image, and I will see that image. Pulling that counterweight, going down, pulling my weight up. And I focus on that image, pulling the weight down. And at that moment, my muscles no longer feel the stress as I continue to press. Hence, I'm able to do tremendous amounts of repetitions and tremendous amounts of weight. And I have a different mental exercise for every Every exercise I do, uh, quick ones that people easily understand for those that lift weights. Like you do another, your tricep extension. You know, you lay, say so you lay on your back on the floor and you have yeah. a dumbbell in your hand and you, and when you're extending your arm is when the mus- muscles contracting. I will see the image of a hammer falling, hitting a board. And when the hammer is falling, when you're hammering something, when the hammer is going down is the least part of the exertion because the weight of the hammer is pulling the, 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 the arm down. So I will see a hammer falling and I will pro- focus on that image. And at that point, I as I said, I no longer feel the muscle stress. Like a quadricep extension, the weight is down. Okay, and I will see a giant rubber band all stretched out. And when I pull it up, that rubber band pulls up. And it's about six inches wide, and it goes down to about three inches when it's down. So I will watch it pull up. And when I focus on that image, as I said, at that point, I lose, I, I no longer feel the stress. And uh, and can you learn this at home without having CBS? My wife, who was a trained athlete, she has a black belt in three different karate sessions, two secondary black belts, and been my, my best workout partner I've ever had. And uh, uh, this was a, probably 15 years ago. I taught her how to use these images. And what she would do is she would look in the mirror. I said, look in the mirror. And then when you get to the point of exertion, you don't do this the whole time because if you do, you're wearing out your brain. You only do it when you get to the point of exertion. Say you, your, your goal is 26 reps and you're at 20, you're at 22. And that's where you're topping, you're, you're physically, you've topped out. Now I pull in that image and I see that image in the mirror. My, my arms are connected to that reflection in the mirror, pulling the weight up. And I focus on that image, pulling the weight up. And then all of a sudden there goes that, that those last four reps. Richard. You hit on something real quick. I, I, I got to ask you this. You've been married for how long? 31, yeah, 30, 30 years? Kim and I have been there 30 years. Okay. I've seen in the movie your relationship. I've seen other instances. Give me the secret to having a great marriage. First of all, you treat your wife as a queen expecting nothing back. In other words, if you expect something back, that's not unconditional love. That's conditional love. I treat her like a queen and because I treat her like a queen, she treats me like a king. And we we never let the sun go down on our wrath. And we have uh, and the thirty years we've been together, not one time has she raised her voice to me, or has she ever 
uh, called me a bad word or a bad name. So that's one thing. And we were both low key in that area. So I, I just, well, you probably saw us when she signed me up. We were sitting there smooching. We never, every time we, as soon as we wake up, starts off with kiss. As soon as we go anywhere, uh, kiss hello, kiss goodbye. Um, so we're constant physical contact. And you can't have physical contact with somebody that you're mad at or you're angry at or you have, mm-hmm. you know, you, know, you hurt. You can't kiss them. You know, so and to keep that uh, opening, we just we communicate with each other. If I have something, I will tell her and and she will she will tell me and she always tells me in a very, very calm way. She's, you know, you've uh, that that did not make me feel good. And or I'll say the same thing. I said, I, that, I don't think that was necessary. And uh, and so we, we we say it in a respectful way and we don't say you hurt me. Yeah, I say, I didn't feel good about that. Don't put it on them. Put it on yourself. Does that make sense? That is that that is what I need to hear. I'm 11 years deep and I'm trying to get better every day. And when I engage people or meet people that have great marriages, I always want to ask because it's like being a great father. I have three boys now. You can't learn enough and can't put enough into practice because you only get one shot at this. And um, I appreciate you sharing that. Yeah, and our son, Ace of Spades, yeah, they say it went to the terrible twos, the horrible threes, all the way through high school, college. Perfect gentleman. We, he and I have traveled the world together. We've been to more cities than you take any 50 people off the street now out of every place they've been to. He and I have been to more places. And uh, and same with him. You know, and of course, I taught him discipline and focus. My wife taught him another, uh, you know, that the standard is. 90 plus if he if he got below a 90 in any of his activities schooling 89 is failing in her book so and, and of course it's 90 is in other words a to a plus or uh, a plus with extra credit and so that was her standard and she uh and she she disciplined him in that way at the same time he also saw two people that loved each other and we've always been respectful with him. And uh, anyway, bottom line is what you were talking about, raising your kids. Somehow we managed to do it. And he, he's just my, one of my, my best friend. And fortunately he works for a big company, does virtual reality uh, coding for them. And, uh, and, and, and he lives in the same city. So we're able to still hang out and do things together. And I'm just as proud of my son as I am my wife. Mm. That's, that's beautiful, Richard. I mean, that's to to me, your legacy is going to be that, you know, I mean, you are an amazing magician, but when you're a father and a husband, you're, you have a priority that supersedes your profession. And I'm going to make a statement on that. And uh, yeah, yeah, I, I've had girlfriends and, and relationships in the past, none of which I would have given up my talent for. I would give up, my wealth, my talent with the cards for my wife. If I had the choice between one or the other, I would take my wife over my talents and the accolades and uh, the financial rewards that have come from that. I would take my my relationship with my wife. You got me choked up, Richard. Well, I, I, that can be a good thing sometimes. <laughs> Didn't mean to choke you up. I might, be a little, might sound a little corny coming from. No, it's you know. not corny because I know your story, and and I've I don't know you as well as my brother does, but I've followed it so closely through him. But um, 
Here's my closing question. In the world of magic, there's nothing you haven't done. You fooled Penn and Teller on their own show. You've received the Magic Castle's Close-Up Magician of the Year Award, which is basically the industry's Oscar. You won the Golden Lion Award by Siegfried and Roy. You've had your life documented in a movie. Is there anything you're still chasing after or want to achieve? Uh, I, I always say when I turned 38, I said I've already had more than my fair share. And everything, I, and then I keep having cherries put on top of the cherries, on top of the frosting, on top of the cake. So I've already been blessed more than my fair share. And they are talking about turning my life into a narrative, into a feature motion picture. And uh, that would be very cool. I have uh, different games uh, that I've created. One's called Batty. I created 55 years ago when I was 11 years old, the school for the visually impaired. And now there's, it'll be an app for your uh, mobile devices. And then two other gaming uh, games that I created, Shark Showdown, Texas Showdown. So they'll be coming out. So that's something that I'm excited about. But as far as the, uh, I've already hit everything I could uh, ever, uh, of, uh, of, ever have imagined and blessed beyond measure. Well, Richard, I just want to thank you for your time and with you sharing your story and your journey with us today, because you are the epitome of a high performer. And uh, thank you for sharing that with us. Eric, it was truly, truly my pleasure and honor. And I can't believe I have the privilege of being with such cool people like you and your brother and so on. I'm Mm. very blessed. Thank you, Richard.